This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. All right. Welcome back, everybody. For our listeners, we did an episode on May 3rd of this year about the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and we had an attorney from Ohio by the name of Jeremy Young on. And Attorney Young kind of gave us an overview of how much money was going to be spent and where it was going. That's all great, right? As we begin to roll this thing out, what everybody wants to know is what's going to be the practical effect? What's going to be the economic effect of this, the social effects? How is it going to affect us as a society or will it? I don't know the answer to that. Do you know, Kristen? I don't know anything. I think you know this. Yeah, Kristen doesn't know much, but we have on the show someone who does, an attorney from New York City by the name of Philip Sanchez. He's counsel in the law firm of Herrick Feinstein LLP in New York City. He's co-chair of the firm's eminent domain practice, and he brings with him over two decades of legal experience in both public and private sectors. He's very experienced in this. He's read up on this act, and he's put a lot of thought into, thought and research, I should say, into how the act will affect us in America. He has extensive experience in all aspects of eminent domain law, and over the years, Phil has successfully settled and litigated many cases on behalf of clients in New York state courts at both trial and appellate levels. Phil has used his many years of experience in eminent domain and real estate matters to provide aggressive legal representation to his clients. He litigates in various New York state courts with a focus on representing clients in all stages of eminent domain proceedings. And those of you who are longtime listeners, you know that Phil and I share the same practice area in the law. Phil has also been recognized since 2015 by super lawyers, and he began his career as the director of community outreach division at the New York City Department of Environmental Protection, and he worked there from 1999 to 2001. Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate that. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. Yeah, no, um, I, it's it's always interesting to talk to other attorneys who do what I do in different parts of the country. They tend to have different perspectives. The eminent domain is kind of handled differently locally. I know the rules are frequently the same, but sometimes some areas are much more adverse to one another. And Virginia is a hot state for eminent domain, so it's always good to hear from someone else. But let's talk a little bit about EJA. Is that what you call yes. it? That's what we we've been calling it down here. That's what we call it. That's what we call it as well. <laughs> All right. It's God. I'm sorry, God. No, no, no. It's. I mean, we're going to spend a couple trillion dollars in this country, and they've already begun yes. rolling some of it out. And so the you question know, is, what's going to happen? Uh, you know, I want to. I want to. I want to answer that with a, with a kind of a little bit of history. If you go back to 1901, and I go when I say go back, go way back before cars really became prolific throughout the United States. Back in 1901, when there was only 4,000 cars in the United States, and the reason I'm telling this story is because of the impact that the infrastructure bill is going to have on electric vehicles. Just look in the, the period between 1901 when there were 4,000 cars, and there were no. They used to call them filling stations. They didn't call them gas stations because you pulled up and they filled up your jugs with, at the time, kerosene or whatever was necessary to run your vehicle. And since there were only 4,000 vehicles, you filled up pretty much anywhere. Any general store, anywhere, you walked in with your jug, 
you filled it, and then you put it in your car. Rudimentary as it was, that's how it worked. Within 29 years, by 1929, going from zero, there were 126,000 filling stations throughout the United States. That dramatic of a change in a relatively short period of time. The impact that this infrastructure bill is going to have is going to be very similar to that. You have the government putting $7.5 billion out there to build electric charging stations network throughout the entire country. I can't explain or express the impact that this is going to have nationwide. Commuting, commuting times, and the ancillary benefits of having all these electric vehicles not producing all those emissions into the, in, in the environments. I think within 20, 25 years of what we're seeing now, you're going to see this kind of sea change. Part of the reason beyond the expense of buying an electric vehicle that electric cars have not been as prolific throughout the country. Yes, you see them on the East Coast and the West Coast, but in the middle of the United States, it's not nearly as prolific because it's very hard to charge. You get a 300 mile charge if you're driving somewhere in the middle of the United States, it's not a 20 mile ride. Sometimes it's 40 or 50 or 60 or more. And there's a concern that if you go to location A, then location B and try to get back to location C, you're not going to have the ability. Plus, the other problem with charging stations is the time. They haven't ramped up the ability. You can go into a gas station, you fill your car up, you're in and out between three and six minutes, six being really long, three roughly being short. A lot of the charging stations are using older technology, and you hear people say four, five, six hours to recharge the car. That's going to change. All those high-speed charging stations are going to change. The goal is to make it so that you can charge the electric vehicle in the same amount of time that we charge your gas vehicle. To me, that's going to be a sea change throughout the country, and that impacts everyone. I start talking about right-of-way agents that are going to be impacted by this. You're building those stations in corridors in a lot of those corridors that the government has use of and other ones that they do not. So to your right-of-way agents on the phone in the 50 states, you're going to get really busy really fast. $7.5 billion to build out a network of, they're talking, 100 to 150,000 electric charging stations throughout the nation. If you weren't busy before, you will be. There is no question in my mind about that. Okay, let, let, there let, just let, isn't enough... There just isn't enough property out there that the government owns, state or municipalities, to have that kind of impact not take place. So, it's so almost let, an impossibility. That, and this is just one small aspect of the act. And I'm just, I'm just talking about a very tiny yeah. piece of this act. And, and and to give you a global perspective. Well, well, before we do the, that, before hold on, hold on, Phil, sure. because you've raised some great points. I want to drill down a little bit. I have two. I had not even thought about the need to acquire land to put these charging stations on. I, I know. You just blew my mind. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I never wait. thought of that. We're gonna, are we going to be doing this? Is this a right-of-way yeah, thing? It, it, it's going to have to be. You're spending $7.5 billion to build these in existing, what they're saying. They're going to try to put them in existing rights away. But how do you do that when you're going to put 100,000 charging stations out there? Wait. I, who, who's, how do you... I'm sorry. I'm, know, I'm, I'm so I'm, excited. I'm, I'm, I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Everybody time out. I, let my, I can talk and talk. And I love this. I can talk and talk. Let my brain process this. So we're talking about 100 to 150,000 charging stations. Are these going to be the, the government? Yeah. Who owns Owns it? these? We, we don't, it, you know, it hasn't been, it hasn't been determined in the infrastructure act. They're just talking about $7.5 billion to build out the network. The only way you can build that a network is you're going to have to have some right of way takings. I say some, I say that tongue in cheek. It's going to be a lot. Wow. The, the infrastructure isn't because the infrastructure isn't there. 
Right. There isn't. Are you, what are you going to do? How are you going to pay? How are you going to get the, the electricity there? You have some stations that they're, they're going to put, obviously, in rural areas. Right. The infrastructure is not there. You have to build it. So you have okay. to get it there. Next question. It isn't like gas. It isn't gasoline where you can just truck it in. Oh my gosh. You have to have lines bringing that in. Ne- next question, and nobody's been able to answer this for me, and maybe you'll be sure. the first. Do you remember VHS versus beta? Remember? Of course. And VHS one. <laughs> yep. So I grew, Tesla, up, I grew up watching that <laughs> Tesla charger or GM charger. I, my understanding is that these chargers are not uniform right now. And that a char- not. it's not a charger doesn't necessarily do a charger. Don't we have to make that uniform? And that's what this wants to do. It wants to standardize the kilowatts that goes into this. It wants to standardize it. it, it, it if you go back and I, I keep going back to 1901, the beginning of cars, they were, they were non-standard. You had, Taxis in New York City at the time that ran on electricity. You had cars that were using kerosene. You had cars that were using, I can't call it gasoline because there was no refineries in existence. It was really oil. You had all these different things, all these different ways of fueling your vehicle. I keep going back to that because it's the only perspective we have on this. So in 1901, 1910, you had all different ways. You had electric vehicles. You had Thomas Edison building electric cars, believe it or not. He was driving around saying to Henry Ford, this is going to be better. Look at all the, the, the smog that your car produces. But the convenience of it, there was no way back then to build out the electric grid to satisfy that, to satisfy that coming huge impetus of people wanting to drive. Remember, you had 12 million horses in 1901 and 4,000 cars. By 1929, <laughs> almost no one was going around on horses, and you had 126,000 fueling quote, gas stations at that point. It was a sea change, and it became much more uniform. Gasoline, refineries, by 1929, it was a much more uniform system to fill that up. I think that's what needs to happen. And you have, you're correct. You have cars that are not, you have Teslas and other electric vehicles, they're not standard. I think along with this $7.5 billion has to be a standardization of that. It has to be. But has anybody that thought standardization, of it? That standardization, it's it, it going to require a lot of right-of-way, a lot of eminent domain. It's going to require that. That's... Build out that infrastructure. It's not just dropping a gas station, opening the ground, and putting tanks in the ground. Well, this is great news simple. for us. This yeah. is good. That's awesome. It's, oh, and then you you said something else. I just wanted to go back a little bit and ask you, you were talking about those charging stations currently can take four to five hours to get a full charge. And then you're there. Right. The, the hope is that it can get down to like filling up your car. Like we might get down to three to six minutes to charge an electric that's car. What the, that's what the, that's what the hope is. I don't know how far out that is, but I've been reading extensively. They're talking 350 kilowatt, et cetera, those stations that can reduce uh. the time. Cause right now, a lot of the concern is you can drive 250, 300, 350 miles. Then what? Then you have mm-hmm. to wait a couple hours. Even a fast quote, a fast charge still takes 30 to 40 minutes from my understanding. That's a bit of a, a time if you have three or four kids in your car mm-hmm. and everyone's asking you, when are we getting there? When are we arriving? When are we getting there? As you know, it, it's not that easy of a process and that adds right. another headache to the process. Wow. Okay. I think, and that, and as you both said, that's just a small impact. Think about the, the federal highway, the establishment of the federal highway system in the 1950s was a $110 billion project. And that altered the, the societies throughout the entire country. You built the interstate highway system that started in the 50s, and they finally finished it in 1994. It was a $110 billion system. The infrastructure package 
in today's dollars, that $110 billion would be $550 billion. The infrastructure package itself is two and a half times that size. And look what just one project did for the interstate highway system. It changed the entire transactional United States in terms of, and there's a very funny footnote to this. The reason the interstate, the inter, interstate highway system was built was because in 1928, a young officer in the military named Dwight Eisenhower yep. was told, I need you to drive cross country and tell us how bad the existing system was. Well, it turns out he used tanks and military equipment that existed at the time, and it took 60 plus days to transverse the entire United States. And when they asked him how it was, he said it was one of the most difficult things he had ever done, being in the military. And he kept that with him all the way to became president in the 50s. And that was really the reason why he set the interstate highway system abound and put money towards that. He experienced himself in 1928 in this onerous trip that took 62 days to get across the United States and said, this is just not feasible anymore. It's not. Wow. That, high, that infrastructure, that interstate highway system really reimagined communities throughout the United States. With that, as you both well know, came a tremendous amount of eminent domain, a tremendous amount of right-of-way takings, and it never ended. I mean, it, it, the, they officially said the interstate highway system was finally done in 1994 after 41 years of construction, but it, it's, it's a larger process. This project, the, this package, you're talking trillions of dollars. It's two and a half times the size accounted for today's dollars of the interstate highway system. I can't even express the amount of impacts this is going to have. Just in New York, there's projects that have been on the books for over 110 years. Second Avenue subway. And you ask anybody who's been involved in it, every time they talk about it, it starts, it stops. It started over 100 years ago. It stopped in the 50s. It restarted in the 60s. Bad timing. By the 70s, the crisis, the economic crisis came. It stopped. It restarted again, and they built another sector. This is a huge project on its own. If you were just talking in New York City about the Second Avenue subway, it would be transformative. But now you have the Second Avenue subway. You have a third tunnel, come, gateway tunnel coming in from New Jersey. You have the reimagining of Penn Station and all the buildings around and above it. Think about that in, in terms of when Rockefeller was Center was built, we were talking three or four buildings. Penn Station is four and a half times that size, the redevelopment of Penn Station. And that's just New York. You're talking about just one small area of reimagining. When these electric charging stations come out, think about all the other ancillary issues that are now going to show up with it. You're going to have the, the, the existing gas stations, they're going to wind down those businesses. They are. The same way we, they winded down the horse and buggy over the course of 21, 22 years, you're going to start winding down all the ancillary infrastructure for those businesses. What's going to happen to that? Are they going to easily transition to, to, to electric stations? I don't know. But the infrastructure that goes along with it is going to be transformative in terms of mobility, in terms of access, in terms of people getting around. You're going to have access to other areas in this infrastructure package, redoing railway systems redoing bridges, the amount of money, no one's ever seen this kind of money, 55, $60 billion to rehabilitate 70% of the bridges in the United States. Nobody's seen that kind of money. If you had done one, if you had done one thing of that size in the past 25 years, it would be transformative. Now Phil, you're doing multiple things simultaneously. Let me ask you this. I ha I got to hear a guy named Ed Wallace speak. He was a writer uh, for the, I think the Fort Worth Star Telegram about 
generational um, relationships with infrastructure and infrastructure development. And he talked about how, you know, the greatest generation would go build a road and they would build it anticipating what was going to happen in 10 or 20 years. And then the the boomers and Gen X were kind of like, ah, we'll just like slap a Band-Aid on it when we have to. There was not a lot of like infrastructure development planning for the future as much as, oh my gosh, this is a crisis because there's a sinkhole, we'll fix it, you know? Is EJA enough to make up for that? Is it enough? I mean, it's a ton. It's a lot. I know it's transformative. Is it enough? I think, I don't want to say it's enough, but I think it's enough to, to stop the Band-Aids. I yeah. think it is. I think it's enough to stop because for so long, we, look, I've watched in the, in the 80s constantly saying, one day we'll have money to do this. One day we'll have money mm-hmm. to change this. One day we'll have money. And it, ne- it never came to fruition. All throughout the 80s, all throughout the 90s, we kept, we kept and I hate to say it, but Gen, I'm Gen X. We kept pushing it we off. We are too. One day, <laughs> yep. one day the funding will come up. And now it seems to be that day. And I think part of the reason it is that day is because for so long, you're correct. The, the economic crisis of the 70s that just paralyzed any ability to do anything. And you're paying for that, even that, that bled into the 80s. And you, for 25, 30 years, you didn't put money in this infrastructure. Well, and we did not. And we were paying a price for that. Right. But the flip side of that is the ancillary benefits of doing this. All the mobility issues, all the ability for, I mean, you have a lot of what we call transit deserts in this country, places that are really inaccessible. You have no choice but to get in your car. You have no choice but to go to the gas station and fuel up. They're reimagining how we do that in this package. And I think that's what they're really looking at. The president and Congress looked at this in terms of, if we're going to really talk about getting away from gasoline power vehicles, and I know we've been talking about this since the oil price shocks of the 70s when everyone kept saying, there's got to be a better way. This may be that better way. This package may be that better way. This may be the beginnings. I don't want to say the beginnings of the end, but the beginnings of a transition away from that. Wow. And along with that goes all of the infrastructure. And look, I hear this all the time. People impacted by eminent domain, by right-of-way agents get very upset, get very angry. There's a lot of good things. And I, I look, I'm a claimant's counsel. There's a lot of good things. There's a lot of bad things. But there's a lot of good things that eminent domain does do for society. It does. It would be extraordinarily difficult for private owners and private village to do some of the things that government can do. It's an incredible power, and it's if used properly, Penn Station, Second Avenue Subway, Barclay Center in New York. I could list stadium developments all over the country where eminent domain has had a dramatic impact. It's a game changer for neighborhoods, for communities. Yes, I'm like I said, I represent a lot of owners. There's a lot of downside to this. Government has to be realistic. The government has to be fair, and they do. So the right-of-way agents and everyone listening to, I urge you to be fair to those properties that are being impacted. I urge you to be fair to those buildings, building owners being impacted. Remember, it's someone's business, it's someone's property, and in rare cases, it's someone's home. Well, Phil, we're... We're at infrastructure junkies. We're always fair. I mean, come on, man. We're fair. But here's the question. Here's the question. And I, I'm sitting here and the, you're talking and the same question keeps popping in and out of my mind. Where's this money going to come from? We just, we seem to spend money, like tons of money on everything. Where is this going to come from? We're, we're borrowing. We're, we are. This is. We were, we're borrowing, borrowing before this act. I know. We're, are we I, mortgaging I our future even worse? You know, 
there's something to be said for that, but there's also the argument that you're reimagining, you're 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 buying into a different future. You got you're looking at this in terms of the cost, the cost. Yes, this is going to be there's going to be a lot of death, there's going to be a lot of future payments to be made on this. But if you're if you're reimagining how the future is going to look from existing point A to point B, the the ancillary benefits, the, the, the there's going to be some significant tax benefits to this. The ability for people to move around, the ability for businesses to to continue to expand within the United States, that 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 infrastructure component is going to add to that. I think my my initial impression is when I first saw this, I said, "Oh my goodness, this is a huge number. How are we going to pay for it?" But when you look at how it's reimagining mobility, transportation, access, you, there, it's not just about getting around, they're talking about high-speed internet as, as part of this. They're using transportation infrastructure in the global sense, rechanging re all the piping to schools, getting rid of all the lead piping as part of this. This is a, a global infrastructure piece that I think will eventually pay for itself. I don't wanna say you're gonna see the benefits in two or three or four years, but I think eight, 10, 12 years out, this may have that impact. I, I started looking at it from a very negative perspective in the beginning. When I first saw it, my, my first reaction was, the cost is just astronomical. How are we right. gonna pay for this? Yeah. But when you reimagine, it's it's kind of saying, in 1954, we're gonna spend $110 billion. That was more than we spent in World War II, and by the way. Wow. <laughs> How are we gonna spend $110 billion in 1954? By the time it was done in 1994, the economic benefits long outweighed that yeah. $110 billion or Time adjusted five hundred and fifty billion dollars in money spent. So, so you have to look at it in terms of long term impacts. Let's hope you're right because if you're not right, we're in for a world. We're in for a world of hurt anyway because we're we just spend too much money on stuff. We just give money we away. Do. Now. We do. But that's another issue. That's do. right. Right. That's beyond the scope of this discussion. But maybe we'll come back on an unfiltered episode and, and talk about yes. that. Infrastructure Junkies, thank you so much for tuning in to another show. I wanted to let you know that this particular episode is generously sponsored by Blackbird Right-of-Way. They're a DBE-certified, women-owned right-of-way company. Now, while Blackbird is a full-service company, it's best known for its expertise in complex relocations. As you already know, taking classes or even getting a certification is no substitute for boots-on-the-ground experience. Kristen Bennett and her team have just that. Experience with almost any type of relocation conceivable. They'll do one parcel all the way up to 100 anywhere in the United States. Look them up at blackbirdrightofway.com and make them a part of your team. That's blackbirdrightofway.com. Hey, infrastructure junkies. We hope you're enjoying this show. Do us a favor, go to our brand new website, infrastructurejunkies.com. While you're there, sign up to be on our mailing list. That way you can stay up to date with what we've got going on. Also, you can follow us on all the socials. We're on LinkedIn, Twitter, Insta, Facebook, and we even have a TikTok. So go follow us there. And then while you're on our website, check out our exclusive content. If you subscribe, you will get access to our brand new weekly podcast called Infrastructure Junkies Unfiltered, where you never know what's going to come out of our mouths. In addition, you can get access to video footage of this podcast. So go check it out. Now, Where's all this electricity going to come from? 
I mean, you know, doesn't all energy eventually go back to fossil fuels unless it's nuclear? Are we going to start building nuclear I, reactors I again? I don't know the answer to that. I honestly don't know the answer to where it's going to come from. That's a very good question. I don't. <laughs> it's going to come out of the ground in the form it's of fuel. It's got to come from somewhere. Yeah. It's got to come from somewhere. You know, I've seen I've seen some kind of troubling pictures of, of electric cars and they're filling up gasoline tanks next to it to get their generators running the cars. I've seen memes along those lines. And you've probably seen that too. Right. The guy's stuck on the side of the road and he's filling up gasoline tanks to so run a generator to, to power to charges the car. The car. But right. again, that's... It's... It's going to change. It's just going to take some time for that to change. But I understand what you're saying. You have to have the infrastructure to produce the electricity to do that. Right. That goes back to my right of way and eminent domain piece. There's going to be some significant amount of takings to accommodate this. There has to be. Yeah. It's just because it, it doesn't exist. You're going from one to 90. Yeah. I, and you, they want to do that almost within a decade. And I, the only way to do that is to have significant impacts on property owners, on businesses. There's no other way around that. And, and I'll tell you this, um, I, and this discussion is just reinforcing what I've suspected for a long time, is our industry, and I, I don't really call it my industry eminent domain, I call it right-of-way. It's much broader than eminent domain. It starts with, right. you know, title searches and, and appraisals and all that stuff. Our industry is in no way, shape, or form prepared for this. Our industry doesn't have a funnel or a recruitment tool in universities. Like, you can't major in right-of-way. You don't major in infrastructure development. You can major in engineering. That's really it's kind of the same thing, but it's really not. We're not ready. We're, we're understaffed on appraisers. We're understaffed on right-of-way agents. Frankly, Philip, what you and I do is considered very niche in the, in the practice of law, it really is. I can't even recruit new associates onto my team, onto my eminent domain team. They're like, yeah, you know, that sounds, that's a little pigeonholed. I want to go be a divorce lawyer or some stupid idea like that, you know? <laughs> I, I'm glad you mentioned that. When I went to law school, and my, as my kids will say, it was eons ago. It wasn't <laughs> yeah. that long. It wasn't that long. I went to law school at night. It wasn't that long ago. And what I learned about eminent domain consisted of one paragraph in a real property textbook. And it said... This is what it is. You'll never run into it. And I remember the little <laughs> property professor saying, I, I'll never forget this. He said, in your entire career, you will never run across this. That's how rare it is. And here we are. And this is our entire practice. This is your entire part career. What, right. And part of what, and right, 23 years later, part of what it is, is, and I hate to use this kind of language, but I think it's the only thing that will appeal to young people. It doesn't have a, a sexiness, a, a flavor, a flash. Yeah. It doesn't have a meme attached to it. Eminent domain, you can't throw up a meme and say, this is what eminent domain is to reach down to the generations that are younger than us, the 20s and 30s. It doesn't have that flavor of criminal law, of divorce law, but it can. If you look at what it does, when I tell people the projects I've worked on in the past 23 years, the Tappan Zee Bridge, which is now the Governor Cuomo Bridge, being taken down, the Barclays Center, the Fulton Street Transit Center, these very large projects all throughout New York State, everyone becomes interested. We kind of look at eminent domain as the small piece, but we have to start looking at it as a piece to a much larger puzzle. Mm -hmm. We're always looking at it in, a micro, in terms of the micro. What are we doing for this? What are the right-of-way agents doing for this? We got to start explaining to people more of a global perspective. When you start talking about the global perspective, the charging stations and how right-of-way agents are going to need, be needed to do this. In New York, I'm one of six attorneys who do this exclusively, full-time. That's it. Wow. In terms of 
what we call fixture appraisers who do the value for the business and everything inside, I think there's only two or three left that do it exclusively in New York. Right. Right-of-way agents, if you're not looking for the state of New York, there's none. Yeah. They, they're all working for the state of New York. And yeah. you're absolutely right. We need to go into colleges. We need to go into law schools and show that there is there is a real career here. Oh, there is a possibility for doing very, very well, for having a good life, for having a good quality of life. It exists. And we have to start selling that a little more besides our small little eminent domain right-of-way infrastructure world. So if we don't, you're right. We're not going to get the gen, the millennials. We're not going to get the Gen Z. We're certainly not going to get my kids who were like, I don't want anything to do with that. That's not fun. <laughs> Neither is mine. <laughs> my kid, my kid is a senior in college and you know, she's majoring in business or whatever. And, and she's thinking about what she's going to do next year. And I said, well, I, I can get you a job. I mean, there's jobs out there. You, you're plenty smart enough to do uh, what needs to be done. And she's like, I, but, I don't want to do that. It's not fun. See, they, Explain it to me it, in a TikTok, on. Dad. This is what they right, say. Right, they right. say it's not fun. But when you think about like millennials and Gen Z and how they, I mean, how they operate uh, compared to us Gen Xers, it's the perfect career. There's so much freedom. There's so much freedom. And I, I think about all the time, like I, if I need to go to the dentist on a Tuesday morning at 10, I go to the dentist. I don't have to call my HR person and be like, I need to take some personal time because I'm going to be working at maybe eight o'clock on a Friday night to meet some displaced person in the country. You know, we're, it's very flexible. And that that's the part of it that I think we could maybe hone in on to give it a little sex appeal to the younger I, generations. I, 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 I don't I, know. I, 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 I hate to say sexy, but eminent domain's gotten really the the, the pushed aside. Even in, in law school, really, it's gotten pushed aside mm -hmm. as this is so rare, we don't really have to spend time on it. And until Kilo happened a number of years ago, I'd say 90% of the people I ran into had no idea what it was, that it could happen right. to you. That's that right. you own property subject to the government. And a lot of people say, that can't be. I, I have clients who, who came over from China, came over from Russia saying, it's impossible, this is the United States. Eminent domain is one of these things that has existed for a thousand years. It's probably one of the oldest powers of government. You go back to William the Conqueror, they used eminent domain to take properties for beneficial government purpose. It's one of the oldest powers that exists. It's one of the core powers of government. Without eminent domain, government ability to function would be drastically reduced. And, and without and a it, lot of this act wouldn't occur. Correct. It, we couldn't. We couldn't people, spend this money, and we couldn't. We couldn't correct. roll this out if we didn't have eminent domain. So, a, a, a lot of people don't realize that your property, you do own it. However, if there's another beneficial use, i.e., kilo, you're going to lose that house. You're going to lose that barn. You're going to lose that shed. You're going to lose some of that that farmland if they need to put a, a transmission line underneath it. They're going to get. They're going to get an easement to do that. They're, they're going to have their right of way agents right up to abutting your farmland if they need to build a roadway. Yeah. They're going to do that, and they can. That's the only way transformative things happen in society. Eminent domain allows the government to do that. Like I said, there's there's good and there's bad. And I think going back to the issue of getting the younger generations involved in this, I actually took my daughter, must have been about a year and a half ago, to a site. that was They were building a bridge, and they were going to take away the entire frontage of a strip mall. And my daughter came up, and she looked at it, and she goes, Dad, this is what you do. This is really cool. Yeah. We get to see something before it gets built out. That's not what we explain to, to young people when we talk about eminent domain law school. Right. That's simply it, it's it's not. Right. But we have to start doing it in terms of 
the real world, the real impacts. Yeah. Well, let, let's go back to the impact of EJA. And um, you and I had had a chat before this, and, and you had suggested that this is going to have an effect on how we commute and commute times in this country Correct. and the expectation. How so? To, to me, I mean, how's this going to affect how we get around and how we commute? They just in just in New York, they're going to spend in the north of $150 billion. For instance, coming in from Connecticut, coming in from Westchester to get to Penn Station, you have to go into Grand Central Station, take a shuttle. Your commute times from some of those locations are north of 60, 70, 80 minutes. They're going to build a new line with this infrastructure money to go directly to Penn Station from Connecticut, from New York, going into going around the existing Metro North lines that go into Grand Central, go into Queens and connect directly to Penn Station. That's going to cut commute times in half, and in some cases, 65%. The model in the United States is simple. If you can get somewhere to work between 30 and 35 minutes, that's the threshold that everyone really wants. And the reason people drive in other areas of the country predominantly, because there isn't public transit, there isn't a way to get around, but the threshold is 30, 35 minutes. Years ago, you hear about the extreme commutes of 90 minutes. Now, that's not even considered an extreme commute. So many people commute 90 minutes. Right. It's not considered extreme anymore. Now, extreme commuting is considered two and a half to three hours. 20 years ago, 90 minutes was considered an extreme commute. Right. So that, the ability to get around through this package, adding train systems, adding railway systems, adding Amtrak through more than just the Northeast Corridor, adding more Amtrak access countrywide. It's in here. I think it's 50. I think I read in there it's 50 or $55 billion to expand Amtrak. That's more money than Amtrak's founded. When they founded Amtrak, they didn't put that much money in. That's why this is going to impact people's commute time. The ability to live 50 miles outside of a city center under normal traffic conditions, taking you an hour and a half to two hours to get in there is really onerous. It is. But if you can get on a train and take a 39 to 45 minute ride in that 50 mile distance or less, or 29 minutes or 28 minutes, that's a game changer in terms of property values, where people want to live and how their lives go about. When you start commuting an hour each way, it has a whole bunch of ancillary impacts on what you can do. Like you were saying, you can't get to the dentist, you can't get to your doctor's appointment. If you need to go to a, a salon, you can't do that. Everything becomes Saturday, Sunday. And it's a very limited impact on what you can do with everyone coming into these places on Saturday and Sunday. There's only so many people that can address those things that you need to do. Most doctor's offices are only open half a day on Saturday. Now you're trying to squeeze those appointments in between 8 and 12 or 9 and 12. Well, let, let's talk about the effect on property values, because initially what I was thinking is there's going to be a demand for more real estate to build this infrastructure, which may have an effect on property value. But you've just touched on something else that I hadn't thought of, is that if you can, and let's take the D.C. Northern Virginia area, okay? Tons of jobs up in the in the Beltway. Right. And property values in Northern Virginia are through the roof because it's adjacent to D.C. But if you can go a little bit further south into Virginia and get into D.C., more quickly without having to get stuck on 95 or 395, then those property values further south are going to see appreciation. Is that is that the sense I'm getting? That, that, that and, and the sense you're getting is correct. The best way I can analogize this to New York, when I was yeah. growing up, no one wanted to live beyond Westchester County. 
If you know the Metro New York region, Westchester County is just north of the Bronx. No one wanted to live north of that. Then Metro North started really expanding into Putnam and Dutchess County. And all of a sudden, between 1985 and 2005, the property values up there in and around those stations increased exponentially. And the same thing when they're expanding Amtrak, when they're expanding access to get into DC, and I, I mean really get into DC, one, one, one ride, so to speak. You get on, you get on your, your train and it's one seamless ride. There's a couple of stops, but it's one seamless transfer there. Not having to sit in traffic on the Beltway for 55 minutes. That's what people want. Right. And when that happens, those property values are going to start rising all around the ancillary system. Right. And they have to because everyone's going to want to live. Okay, it's 30 minutes to go 41 miles. Suddenly areas outside in, in northern or southern, I should say southern DC become very popular. You have that ability to access inner city or downtown without having to spend 90 minutes in traffic or having to do a two trip commute where you have to get on one train and then transfer to the next one. And that's pain because now you're subject, there could be delay on the first one and you're certainly subject to some ancillary delay in the second one. If there's weather issues, all of a sudden between the first 30 minutes of your commute and the second 30 minutes, it could start snowing. And all of a sudden, right. okay, the delays begin to begin to ramp up. And you run into a lot of problems, whereas you get on your train, you get on your subway, boom, one hit, you're there. Wow. Your biggest concern is did you wear the right boots that morning if it starts snowing. Right. Well, I live in Texas, so the snow's not very often a problem unless, you know, we have a big unless storm. the power grid we fails. The power grid. Right. You know, just that. That's all. <laughs> but along with, along with that infrastructure, along with all of the spending that they're doing, and I keep coming back to this, is... You're right. We're going to need a lot more right-of-way agents. We're going to need a lot more eminent domain counsel across the 50 states. Yep. There's there's no question in my mind that this is going to become a very large area of the law that had been underutilized. Look, you, if you had a billion dollars or two being two billion dollars being spent in Texas on projects to change the infrastructure, as eminent domain attorneys, we would say, my God. I mean, they could be taking. 70, 80, 100, 200 properties, we would, under normal circumstances, that would be a heavy load for us. Mm -hmm. Now you're talking something in the area of 150 times that size. Jeez. Wow. And that's just New York, $150 billion just in the New York region. Well, forget Phil about, like you said, Virginia, forget about Florida, forget about Texas, forget about California, forget about the entire West and Midwest that are going to see the benefits of this. Where you had areas that okay, you had an eminent domain proceeding once every thirty-five or forty years, or right-of-way takings, but they were so limited and so non-invasive that it really didn't have that kind of impact. Right. Right. Well, Phil, I, I think I, I went into this this discussion with a feeling that we're just going to kind of explore what the effects of this bill or this act is going to have, and now what I'm thinking is this. This discussion is only a starting point of the effects. I'm not, it's, it's like trying to comprehend infinity or space right, or what right. comes after our next solar system or our next Milky Way. It, it, we could sit here, we could sit here and, and talk for five hours and brainstorm all the different ways that this act is going to affect our nation, our culture, our society, our standard of living, our expectations, the way we approach the world, the way we get around, and we still wouldn't be able to comprehend the magnitude of this. That's what I'm getting out of this conversation. 
and that's true. The best way, being a New Yorker, practicing in New York, the best way I could describe it to you is we had so many projects in New York that we were not able to fund. And right. I could just start, I'm going to start with Long Island, work your way forward. The Ron Concomaha, the expansion of Long Island Railroad, the third track for Long Island Railroad, the Hudson Yards project, the Penn Station project, the Penn Station access project. On their own, any one of these projects for those regions would be transformative. They would. In a vacuum, just doing Ron Concomahab out in Suffolk County would be transformative for that region. The third track for Long Island Railroad, for, for MTA, that would be transformative. Penn Station access from Connecticut would be transformative. Now you're doing them all at the same time. Those economic benefits, those ancillary impacts to commuting times, to people's ability to, to get to the grocery store, it just goes down and down all the way down the line. You're talking about billions of dollars for Amtrak. Look, look at it in, in terms of DC. If you hadn't had the build out of the infrastructure in DC in the past 60 or 70 years, how much more difficult would it have been to get around? We're looking at this as if DC didn't have that transit system, didn't have the infrastructure it has now. And yes, we complain about the traffic, we complain about, but go back to a time when it didn't exist. Yeah. You think it's hard now? Go back mm -hmm. to then and right. you see how long it took to get around. This is going to make, we're going to look back at this time and say, did we really spend 90 minutes commuting? Did we really spend an hour doing this? And how long is going to open up a lot of avenues of, of things that we hadn't thought about? So when we built the interstate system, I believe that commenced in the 1950s and you said it, it concluded in 1994. Uh, EJA has, is commencing now, and right. when will it conclude? Certainly not in my lifetime, I wouldn't think. No, I, I think with the amount of money, I mean, you're going to see projects, you're going to see bridge re, redoing, replacement, reconstruction, you're going to see the infrastructure going into the schools, the high-speed internet. I mean, it, it's touching on almost every aspect of everyday life. I can't right. imagine we're going to spend over a trillion-plus dollars in the next five or 10 years. I think this is a 25 year package in terms of even when the money were to get to Virginia and Texas and Iowa and Utah, there's a whole process of putting the projects together, spending it, et cetera. It takes time. Look, you both know to, to normal folks as fast as today, tomorrow, next week, it takes time. Government moves at a slower pace than we do. Right. It does. It takes time to put these projects together. And then you're going to run into all the pushback. Why is it my right of way being taken? Why is my house being taken? Why is a piece of my farmland being taken for a transmission line? You're going to run into that. You're going to run into that in, 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 in Iowa. You're going to run into that in Nebraska. You're going to run into that in Texas. You're going to run into California. It's one of those things that's going to impact everyone. The, the right of way agents, the eminent domain pass, aspect of this really is going to change. Because for so long, you're right. We looked at eminent domain as a one-off. We're the only ones talking about it. We're the only ones doing it in our small, insular world. It hadn't had the kind of impact that I believe this is going to have. Okay. I think I think that's a good note to wrap up. Kristen, this has been fascinating. I, well, I'm just so excited. <laughs> just This is so exciting to me. And I've, I was excited about it when I first heard about it. I was excited about it when we talked about it before. But thinking about like the impacts that this will have on on my me my little Kristen Bennett in Texas like my life and my children and my my commutes my job my career I mean I I think that this pretty much guarantees that I'm not going to run out of work 
as long as I am breathing no. air and wanting to work in right of way. Right. Um, I, I don't know. It just, it's, it, you've kind of blown my mind a little bit. I, I was thinking I, we're going to talk about, you know, economic impacts and stuff. No, no, no. This is going to change everything. Think about it this way. If prior to this in Texas and Virginia, if the federal government said, we're going to give $5 billion to Texas for infrastructure changes, for right of way, for eminent domain, and in Virginia, $5 billion, we would be talking to you through saying 10, 15 years ago, this is incredible. The amount of work we're going to see from this $5 billion, which is a lot of money, but in terms of government, it isn't, would be right. huge. Right. Now we're talking about something that's a trillion dollars impacting pretty much every aspect of life, and it's going to be transformative. Look, if your commute now is 30 minutes and it goes down to 18, it doesn't seem dramatic, but it is. Yes, it is. It sure really is. is. That's that's 12 minutes less you have to listen to right. this podcast. Right? <laughs> Gosh. Well, this has been fascinating. I can't thank you enough for enlightening us. And you've given me a lot to think about. I mean, I'm, I'm, my mind is just spinning right now. This is amazing. And I think I think you both tapped into something. I've, I've, I've wanted to do this for a long time. I think we should consider, I mean, just my piece of advice, doing a podcast at a law school in Texas, in Virginia, in California. Because I think the students, the law students, don't understand what's in this and right. how it may impact them beyond just us. Right. Sure. It's right. a great idea. Beyond the Gen Xers who've been doing this for 20 plus years. Yeah. That it really is going to have an impact on them. And that this isn't some oddball, they're taking the lady's house in Connecticut for the for the redevelopment, which never happened in Kilo. <laughs> right. This is going to be right-of-way agents all across the country. Those yeah. property owners are going to need to talk to people like us. They're going to. And they're going to need to talk to a lot more folks like us. So I just throw it out there. I think we could expand in terms of we need to appeal to young people. We do. This is this. It is a sexy business. It is fun. It is Heck exciting. Yeah. You can probably tell. I, I I really love this. It's it, you get to see areas. And this is what I wanted to end with. You get to see things before, and then you get to see them after. If you walked Barclay Center with me before it was built, and you looked at the neighborhood, and you reimagine in your mind, this is really going to have a dramatic impact on the surroundings. You look at Penn Station. You look at the Amtrak, when they're going to add all those stations, when they add all the access. Those community, the property values are not going to go up, but people's lives are going to change along with that. Yeah. It really does have a trend. And it, it's, it's wonderful to see a project before and a project after. That's the good part of eminent domain. The bad part, someone's losing their property, someone's losing their, their business, et cetera. There's, there, it's good and bad. There's a yin and yang to this. But it really, it has transformative impacts. And for the other side, I just urge government to be fair to everyone. That's all. All right. Be Simple fair, everybody. Thank you so much, Phil. Thank it was you, Phil. a thank it you. It was a pleasure to, to talk to you today. This is Sunshine Vanover with OR Colon Associates. You've been listening to Infrastructure Junkies with Kristen Bennett and her assistant.